Well, this week I uh, listened to a popular evangelical church leader who spoke on the subject of the church and how we engage culture. He made a statement to the effect that the church is answering questions that nobody is asking. And he said something to this effect, I'm paraphrasing somewhat, I'm sure, but he said something to this effect, nobody cares about the nature of the Spirit of God. They care that their mother or child died and wondered, does the Bible say anything about that? He went on to say that people don't want to hear preachers say, open your Bibles and turn with me to, well, guess what? Open up your Bibles now and turn with me to the book of Galatians. He made it very clear in his presentation that people don't want to hear that. And yet I would submit to you that here at Northwest Community Church, you're going to hear that a lot, right? Open up your Bibles and turn. Because I got to tell you, I really don't have anything to say this morning that is not out of this book. And quite frankly, as I'll say here in just a few moments, you really shouldn't care much about what I say that isn't founded upon the inerrant truth of the Word of God. In fact, uh, 1 Timothy 4.16 goes on to say this, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And I say all this to you this morning, I tell you about this encounter with this evangelical leader this week to, to let you know that our time in Galatians uh, chapter 3 and 4 may not seem to be the most relevant to you in your life unless you listen very closely. You might not be asking the question right now, why is it that we're justified by faith alone and not by works? But let me assure you that it matters greatly. What we're talking about out of Galatians chapter 3 and 4, really out of the whole book of Galatians, it matters dramatically what you understand to be true about this text. And I would argue that what I mentioned to you on the first week of our study is actually crucial for each one of us to grasp. I said this, and I quote myself, you asked, does the pure gospel matter? Yes, emphatically. How important is it that we teach grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone? It's all we have. We have no other reason for existence as a church. We have no hope for the future except for our confidence in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would submit that to you again. The gospel, my friends, is all that matters. Yeah, okay, three of you believe that. I mean, the gospel is all that matters. Now, I, I could tell you this morning, and, and we could have for the next six weeks, I could, I could give you four, four quick steps to a better marriage, how to, how to have better kids. I, I could do all of those things, and we do those things from time to time. A lot of times we do it out of the exposition of the truth of Scripture because it is God's work that is the guidebook for life. But let me tell you this, if you don't get the gospel, none of that matters. None of it matters. We have got to be right on the gospel. And let me tell you, in a world that you and I are living in, where there are so many quote-unquote evangelical churches, I'm not talking liberal mainline denominations or something of that sort, cult. I'm talking about churches that, are, that say that they're evangelical, that believe in the truth of the word of God, who are not straight on the gospel. In a culture that you and I live in, it is so critically important that we understand that we are justified. We come into a relationship with Jesus. We are made clean solely by Christ alone and his death on the cross and not anything else that we do on our own. 
And if you're clear on nothing else this morning, I hope that over the next several weeks you get clear on that. I was, I was sharing with the, the worship team before we began this morning as we prayed that, that I, you know, I look at the text and I go, I, I understand the text and I rip it apart and I go, that's what I said last week. You know, these people are going to think I don't have anything else to say. And then God said to me, you don't. You really don't have anything else to say except for my gospel. So if you're here this morning and you're visiting with us and you're unclear about the gospel, let me assure you that I hope that by the end of our time in the book of Galatians that you are clear on one thing, and that is that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. That's all I have to offer you this morning. And so I refuse to be bored by this text I'm going to try to make it come to life for you as much as I can. But at the end of the day, it is the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to offer. We've been in a study of Paul's short letter to the churches in southern Galatia. And that's where we're going to be this morning. Paul is writing to these churches because he's concerned that many of them have bought into some teaching that they've heard. That their faith in Christ alone is not enough to save them. And in fact, as we get to chapter 3 this morning, which is where we'll be in those first 14 verses, Paul gets to the heart of the error, and it's namely that the Galatians sought to be justified by the Mosaic law. And in contrast, Paul is going to present the argument that justification comes to people by faith in Christ, not by their works, not under the law. And you remember, if you've studied the book of Romans, that in the book of Romans, Paul talks about justification, and he talks about it in a very positive way about what justification is. In his short letter to the churches in Galatia, he talks about what the gospel is not. And so the gospel is the way in which we enter the kingdom of God. But now Paul is going to show us that the gospel is much more than that, that we're not only saved by the gospel, but we also grow by the gospel. Paul's saying that we don't just simply begin with faith and then proceed to grow on our own by good works. Let me stop there for just a moment because I think that's what many of us do. Many of us come to faith in Jesus Christ and we say, I place my faith and trust in Christ alone for my salvation. And then we somehow buy into the idea that now it's kind of left up to us to just kind of be good, right? That somehow we just kind of have to work it out, that, that God saved us and then he go, okay, I did the hard part. You're no longer bound under the weight of sin, so now go out there and just be good. You, you, ever, you ever feel like it's just really tough to be good? I do. I feel on a regular basis it's tough to be good, and I think that's because for so many of us, we think that we grow up now on our own. We're certainly justified by faith in Christ, but we are also sanctified by our faith in Christ. In fact, remember this, we never leave the gospel behind. And that's why it's so important on a regular basis to be reminded of what the pure gospel actually is. And so Paul begins chapter 3 with a series of questions. And in the first several verses, he asks about five questions. And we're going to look at those just real quickly this morning. Look at verse 1. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, some commentaries translate this word foolish as moron. That's really an incorrect translation, although it would be really cool to just kind of go in and say the modern vernacular is, oh, morons, oh, moronic Galatians. 
The word foolish actually pertains to an unwillingness to use one's mental faculties in order to understand. In order, you have the ability to be able to understand, but you refuse to use your minds. Parents, does that sound familiar at all? You ever look at your kids and go, you have the ability, why don't you use your minds? That's what's happening here. That's why Paul says they're being foolish. The people presumably would not use their capacity for understanding, and as a result, they thought and they behaved foolishly. The word does not imply a mental state of being that they're, they're idiots or that they're imbeciles. They have the mental capacity, but they refuse to use the ability that they have to be able to think and reason and understand, and as a result, he calls them fools. As far as Paul was able to tell, the Galatians were guilty of sheer spiritual stupidity. That's one of the best ways that I can put it. In fact, J.B. Phillips, a commentator, wrote this. He paraphrased this by saying, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, surely you can't be so idiotic. There's a lot of commentaries that I read this week, and it's interesting how they try to spin this. That somehow the Apostle Paul really, he wasn't saying that they were idiotic. He wasn't really saying that they were fools. And here's the bottom line after looking at, that, at this word in the original uh, Greek language. No, he really meant that. They're really foolish. They're really act acting in a really stupid way. They're really acting in an idiotic manner. And the only correct way to deal with the text is to acknowledge that this is part of a harsh and angry letter. Paul is ticked off, and I believe rightly so, because he's concerned about the purity of the gospel. The Galatians' attraction, he goes on to say, to the false gospel is so irrational that Paul says to them, who's bewitched you? Who's bewitched you? The idea is, who's put you under their spell? I fear for many of us as Christians, we have become the spiritual equivalent of the toddler who notices something interesting on the floor and goes over to that and without any examination just takes it and sticks it in their mouth. You ever see a toddler do that? I've seen kids actually that are older than toddlers. In fact, I've seen some grown men do that from time to time. But we would look at that and we would go, that's gross and disgusting. I mean, these young parents that were up here this morning, they would never want their child to, to go, oh, you know, or, well, there's a piece of gum. I put it in my mouth. We would look at that and we would say, no, we wouldn't, we wouldn't want them to do, do that. We'd think that that's, that that's disgusting, that it's gross, that somehow that would mess their insides up, that they'd get some kind of disease. Much of the problem, though, I believe for us as Christians is that we do the same thing. And it happens because we don't know what we believe. And so we will, metaphorically speaking, we will simply grab whatever looks good on the floor and we will stick it into our mouths or into our minds. It's interesting how many of us as followers of Jesus are led away from sound doctrine. It happens a lot in Christian bookstores. You ever been to the Christian bookstore? I know Matt would agree with me on this and other guys on our staff and our elders. You go into a Christian bookstore and they have these displays set up and they're popular books and they look so great and they look so wonderful. And so you buy that book. You think, hey, if everybody is reading your best life now, hey, I want to have my best life right now too. Uh, what a dumb title for a book. If this is your best life, I mean, if this is all we really have, we are pathetic people, are we not? And yet we, we read it because everybody's, everybody, a few years ago it was The Shack. The Shack. There was a church in our area that did a whole month-long series on a book with tons of doctrinal fallacy on it called The Shack. 
or a book that an evangelical leader, so-called, I use that in quotes, wrote not too long ago, Love Wins, where he questioned the literalness of hell. And we sit there and we go, I, I saw that on the internet. Somebody, somebody liked it on Facebook. Oh, that's a sure way to know that you're getting good stuff, right? Somebody liked it on Facebook. Or we look at the latest preacher or teacher. And we think, well, I've heard that preacher's name. I've heard that teacher's name. Therefore, they must be good. He's on TV. There's lots of people that watch and listen to them. We also do it with music, don't we? We do it with Christian music all the time. It's amazing how much music we will listen to, where we don't listen to doctrine, where we don't listen to the words that are literally being preached to us with music behind them. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Do you recognize that in our world today and in our American culture, for sure, that this kind of literature, this kind of music, preachers, this is big business. It really is. And just like there are these Fortune 500 companies that are out for your business and to convince you that they have the best thing, that happens under the banner of Christianity all the time. I implore you to be discerning. Don't allow yourselves to be bewitched. You need to know sound doctrine and you need to be discerning. For so many of you, it's so easy to say, well, what does my church believe? Or what does my pastor believe? Let me tell you, I can be just as screwed up as the next guy. You should only care what I think, and I say this on a regular basis. You should only care what I think if you can take it and you can challenge it against what you know to be the revealed truth of the Word of God. It's important for you to know and understand what you believe and why you believe it. It's not what my church or what my pastor says. We need to study for ourselves. In fact, Paul told the young pastor Timothy, he said, study to show yourself, to make sure that you understand. Let me stop for a moment and just say this to you. It's okay to come to Northwest and be young and immature in your faith. Some of you, in fact, if you were honest and you kind of did an evaluation of where you are and your understanding of the Word of God and certainly your understanding of, of doctrine and why you believe what you believe, you would say, I'm, I'm pretty young in my faith. I'm, I'm pretty immature. And, and I want you to know, it's okay for you to be here. In fact, I'm really glad that you're here. I think you're in a good place, and I think you're in a safe place to grow. In fact, I'll go a step further. I know that there are a number of you in this service and the next service that are exploring the claims of Christ on your life. There's a lot about the Bible. There's a lot about doctrine that you don't understand. In fact, the vast majority of it you don't understand. Let me tell you, you are welcome in this place. That's why we do what we do. But while I say that, it's okay for you to come like that, but we're not okay with you staying like that. Do you understand the difference? It's okay with you walking through these doors and being here for several weeks or several months, but if you look back in a few years and you have not grown at all in your understanding and your knowledge of the word and of doctrine and of why you believe what you believe, I would say to you, find another place to go. We want you to grow up in your faith, and this ought to be a place where you are consistently being challenged to grow. We want you to come into a relationship with Jesus, and then we want you to know what you believe and why you believe it, and we want you to be fully convinced of it. 
not just because Brian says something or Matt says something or I heard the elder say this or I read this in our doctrinal statement. Paul further wrote to young Pastor Timothy in in his second letter in chapter 3, verse 14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing that from whom you've learned it and from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God, may be complete and equipped for every good work. That's what I desire for you. I want you to be spiritually mature. I don't want to just throw out mega stuffed Oreos to you, spiritually speaking, on a Sunday morning. I want to throw some steak and some vegetables and stuff you got to really chew on and you go, I'm getting it, I'm understanding it, because you're growing up in your faith. Is that a good thing? That's really an awesome thing. You ought to love to be challenged in that way. And so the second part of verse one, we better hurry because we got 13 more to go. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Here's the deal. When they heard and received the gospel, it wasn't a stale and dry lecture. I'm afraid that a lot of times that that's what the gospel is to a lot of people. When I give you the gospel and you're sitting here this morning and if you've not trusted in Christ alone and I give you the gospel and you go, and it sounds kind of boring. Let me tell you, there's nothing boring about the gospel. It's an incredible message and And Paul says it was before your eyes that that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. There was a a vivid picture that was painted. It was crystal clear to you. Like the first time you saw high-definition TV. Do you remember it? And you went, wow, I no longer need to go to the football game. I mean, this this is awesome. I got surround sound. I hear people talking in back of me. The picture is incredibly vivid. It's clear. I feel like I could reach out and touch. Paul says that's how clear the gospel was portrayed to you. So verse two, he says, let me ask you a second question. Did you receive the spirit of God by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The result of our faith in Jesus is that we receive the Spirit. They are indivisibly linked. The Spirit doesn't work apart from the gospel. If you've trusted in Christ alone as your personal Savior, here's the really great news about the gospel. The Spirit of God comes to live inside of you. He comes to indwell you, giving you the ability to be able to live this life that's talked about in the Bible. Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Again, are you stupid? Are you idiotic? How are you being sanctified? Let me tell you this. Where there is justification, right? Being made clean before God. Where there's justification, there'll be sanctification. If you're trying to be justified by works, made clean in God's eyes by works, then you'll be continually trying to make yourself acceptable to God. How? By doing good works, right? The word sanctification is used in the New Testament of the separation of the believer from evil, and it's the result of obedience to God's word. Sanctification differs from justification in three major ways. If you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. Justification is a one-time work of God, all right? We aren't progressively being justified, right? We aren't progressively that God says, ah, I'll give you a week, see how you do. I'll give you six months, I'll give you a year. 
Justification happens at a moment in time. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus and you've not crossed over that line of faith, here's the great news about the gospel today. You can decide today to step over that line and you will be justified. You will be made clean in God's eyes. Your sin debt will roll off of your back. It'll be, uh, it, it'll be a roll to the foot of the cross. You can be justified. It's a one-time work of God resulting in a declaration of not guilty. Sanctification is a process. It begins with justification, and then it continues throughout all of your life. Now, remember what I just said. Where there's justification, there will be sanctification. If you are not continually being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, then you would do well to go back and look at your justification to make sure that you've really crossed that line of faith, that you've placed your trust in Christ alone as your Savior, right? Because justification happens and then sanctification follows it. Number three, justification is the starting point of the line that represents the Christian life. Here's justification. Sanctification is the line itself. And it will go out into the time that we get to be where we stand in front of Jesus. And the Bible says we're finally like him because we see him as he is. That's why we say we believe in progressive sanctification, right? We're continually being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Christians today need to realize this truth in verse 3. Because for many of us, we need to understand that that same spirit who saved us has the ability to be able to help us live for Christ, to live in a way that brings pleasure to our Heavenly Father. And without the Spirit of God indwelling us and without the work of the Spirit of God, it's impossible to do. Paul said it in Romans 7. The things that I want to do, what happens? I find myself not doing them. The things I know I shouldn't do, what do I do? I keep doing them. Okay? It happens by the Spirit of God continually working in our life along that line of sanctification. Verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? These people had already willingly suffered for their faith, and Paul is saying, if that wasn't the true gospel, if it wasn't that you received justification through faith in Christ alone, then why did you suffer? Why would you have suffered for something that was not true? Verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Through the gifts of the Spirit, the ministers in the Galatian churches were doing wonderful works, but they could never do these things through the law. It was only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is by grace. It's not by the law. The bottom line is the means of justification is faith. Paul then goes on now in verses 6 to 14. And this is where I don't want to lose you, right? Some of you are nodding a little bit, right? I don't want to lose you because this is really important. And Paul now, in a masterful way, is going to go down from verse, uh, from verse 6 all the way to verse 14. And I think he's going to do something which is really cool and really incredible. Because when he goes down through these verses, he's going to use their very argument to prove his point. And it's going to be a biblical argument. It's going to be based on the Old Testament. Paul tells them that what he's been preaching to them actually is not new at all. That these Judaizers who came in and said, oh, that's, that's really something different than, than what, it's not really new at all. It's always been this way. And so verse 6 says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Notice what the text says. 
Just as Abraham did what? He believed God. It doesn't say that he believed in God. There are a lot of people that believe in God. In fact, I can't think of very many people that I interact with on a regular basis who would say, I do not believe in God. There's a lot of us that believe in God. The text says he believed God, period. James 2.19, a verse that many of you are familiar with, says this, that even the demons, they do what? They believe. The demons believe. They've seen it. They know that there is a God. Abraham had to believe and trust what God actually said in his promise to save. Now, here's the really cool thing. The verses 6 and 7 are actually a quote of Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 says this, And he believed the Lord, speaking of Abraham, Abram, and he counted it to him as righteousness. The Judaizers were pointing to Abraham, the father of the Jews, as their example, that that somehow Abraham was justified. He was made righteous by his good works, by keeping the Mosaic law. But how was Abraham saved? He was saved by faith. And all who trust Christ are children of Abraham, the father of the believing. Now, here's a really cool thing, all right? You can write this down in your notes. You can really impress somebody someday when you know and understand this right here. The whole argument early on is the idea of circumcision. The idea that really, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus and, 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 and if you're really going to have a, a, a saving relationship, that, that you can't be really a Gentile. You've got to be a Gentile who keeps the Mosaic law, who's circumcised. Here's the really cool thing. Genesis 15, 6 says that Abram believed the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness. Do you know where circumcision is actually instituted in the law? Not many of you do. See, you haven't been reading this week, right? It's in Genesis chapter 17. One of the most clear arguments, I believe, that should have been there for the Judaizers, that should be there for those that say, we keep the Mosaic law and that's somehow how we become justified, is that circumcision wasn't even instituted until you get to chapter 17. Now, we're not going to go to chapter 17. You can, you can go there on your own if you'd, if you'd like to. But the very question you ask yourself is, how could circumcision have played a part in Abraham's righteousness if it happened after God declared him righteous because of him believing the Lord? James chapter 2 and verse 23 says, the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Romans 4 says the same thing. Look at verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verses 8 and 9 are a quote of Genesis chapter 12. It's amazing how Paul is going right back to the law. He's going right back to the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3 says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Paul's quoting Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. God promised to to bless the heathen Gentiles through Abraham, which means that Jews and Gentiles are saved in the same way. Not a really big deal to you and I today, but a really big deal to them in the turmoil that they're dealing with. The gospel that Abraham believed was certainly not the full gospel of of the grace of God that we preach today. Even the apostles didn't fully understand the meaning of Christ's death until it was explained to them. But the gospel that Abraham believed 
was the good news that God would bless Abraham and make him a mighty nation. Abraham believed this promise, and as a result of believing that promise, Scripture says, this faith was accounted for righteousness. Verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Verse 10 quotes Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of the law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. In other words, you want to be saved by the works of the law? But the law doesn't save anybody. In fact, the law does just the opposite. The law and a bunch of lists... All that does is prove that you're actually cursed because you can't actually keep the entire law. So he says in verse 11, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Quoting Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it's not right within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. That verse is quoted again in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17 and Hebrews chapter 10. It's so rich that God repeated it more than three times in the New Testament. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 12 quotes Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. There's a vast difference There's a vast difference by doing and believing. Paul is saying nobody was ever saved by doing the law because nobody can ever fully obey the law. And that's what the law did, right? The law exposed that there's absolutely no way that you can be good on your own. That's what the law does. That's what legalism does, by the way. It proves the very point that you can't be justified. You can't be made clean by keeping a list of rules. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Verse 13 is a quote of Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, where it's written, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hangman is cursed by God. When a person was executed in the Old Testament, it was usually by stoning. (laughs) What an incredible, painful death, right? I mean, to be put up against a tree or against a wall or something and have people throw stones at you. I mean, I'm thinking, just put a bullet through my head, right? I mean, the idea of stoning was horrible, but that's usually how a person was executed. And then the body would be hung on a tree or, or propped up against a, a, a pole. And it was a symbol of divine rejection. It was not that the man was cursed because he was hung, but rather he was hung as a sign of his curse. And Paul makes the connection to Christ, whose execution was on a cross, on a a tree, to show that he experienced the curse of divine rejection because he was carrying our sin. And by doing so, he redeemed us from the curse of the law. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 says this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And why did he do that? Verse 14 says it. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's really good news. I know it's Sunday morning and it's early and you stayed up 
too late last night, but that's really cool. I mean, that's really great news. How many of you are Gentiles in here this morning? All right, some of you are going, I'm looking around going, I don't know, I guess. But yeah, most of you are, all right? <laughs> if you don't know, you are, let's just say that, <laughs> all right? Most of us are Gentiles. That verse is so pivotal, is it not? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Aren't you glad that this gospel is for us? Yeah, that's an awesome thing. That's a good thing because most of us here, if not all of us here this morning, are Gentiles. And as a result of it not being by a bunch of works, not being about the Mosaic law, not being about a list of things that, that we add to it to make us somehow appear good in God's eyes, that it's, that it's through Abraham that we receive by faith the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tim Keller sums it up well when he says this on this passage. Salvation means so much more than just forgiveness. We do not simply have our slate wiped clean. We also become perfect in God's sight. That's a big deal. Because if we just had our slate wiped clean, here's the problem with my slate. If you wiped it clean today, what would happen by the afternoon? In fact, I won't say just the afternoon. I'd say late morning. What will happen by that? There'll be stuff on it again. This is the cool stuff about the gospel. And I know I'm probably a little more excited about you because I've spent a lot of hours studying this. But this is what's really cool. He's not just wiping our slate clean. We also become perfect in God's sight. And we stay perfect in God's sight. That's an awesome thing. It's not when we sin that all of a sudden God goes, I told you. You said you were sorry. That's what we do to one another. That's what we do to our kids. That's not what God does with us. We do not begin by trusting in Christ's curse-becoming, blessing-giving death for us and then continue by human effort as though we must somehow now earn ongoing blessing. Tim writes, that's foolish, that's idiotic, that's stupid. We go on as we began, having our hearts melted and molded by knowing and trusting Christ crucified. So we never move on from the gospel. We never can, and we never need to. Let me read as we close some verses that I really love a lot. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Some of you memorized at least one of these verses. Verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. I love that. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has shown up. It's come. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That's why we say the message of the gospel. That's what we have to offer this morning. That that debt of sin that you're carrying on yourself and that, that you wonder, will I somehow be good enough that one day God will look at me and he'll go, ah, all right, come on in. Now the gospel is all about reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, I love this. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That should be a hearty amen right there. That's an awesome thing. That is the gospel 
That's what we have to give. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, or you think you're a follower of Jesus, but you're trusting in yourself, to trust in yourself means that you will be eternally disappointed. In fact, I say to you this morning that if you die today and you slip out into eternity, if you are trusting in yourself, if you're trusting in your good works, if you're trusting in your pedigree because of what your parents do or because of what some church leader said you are, because of who you are, because of what your name is, you will be eternally disappointed. It is only by faith alone in Christ alone that we are justified, that we are made clean this morning. And when you place your trust in Christ alone as the payment for the penalty of your sin, you come into a right standing with Jesus and it never, ever, ever changes. Your debt has been marked paid in full. You have a right relationship with Jesus. Your eternity is secure. The spirit of God comes to live within you and you progressively are being sanctified. You are being being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That is, my friends, that is the message of the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you've not yet crossed over that line of faith, I'm gonna be standing right up here as we close this morning. Greatest day of your life would be come up here and say to me, hey, I want to step over the line. I want to trust in Christ alone as the payment for the penalty of my sin. I want to come into a relationship with the creator. I want to be reconciled to God. You can begin that today. Justification is a one-time event. It happens, you're marked paid in full, and you begin to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. If that's you this morning and you've not stepped over that line of faith, I invite you to come this morning at the close of our service. I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you. I can give you four easy steps on how to make your marriage better, how to have better kids. I can give you all those things. None of it will really matter if you're not straight on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thanks for this text. We obviously are just as foolish, I know I am, just as stupid, just as idiotic as these Galatians were behaving. Because we need to have things burned into our souls time and time and time and time again. There are some that are in this room this morning, they've heard this gospel message preached time and time and time and time and time again. And for some of them, this morning, God, all they heard was wah, 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 because they've heard it over and over and over again. But God, it caused us not to be so foolish, not to be so idiotic, that we would spend eternity apart from God because we were so arrogant as to believe that somehow we would be made righteous, righteous through our own good deeds. God, I pray for the, for the guy, for the woman that's in this auditorium this morning. They've yet, not to st- they've yet to step over that line of faith. God, I pray that they would do that today. They would place their trust in Christ alone, that they would believe God, believe that he is who he said he is, that he did what he said he did. And that by believing in that, we come into a relationship with Jesus. Our slate is wiped clean and it stays that way in your eyes. God, thanks for the gospel. It's all we have and it's all we need. We thank you in Jesus' name.